Thank you all for joining us again on the NeuroNoodle Network podcast featuring our neuropsychologists, Dr. Laura Janssens and Dr. Skip Wren. Did I say it right this time, Doc? Got it. You got it. All right. Getting better. That neurofeedback's paying off for me. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, you know, Twitter. Help us out. Uh, today, we're going to answer our listener questions on depression. Stand by for that. Got a couple shout outs before we get going, guys. Uh, shout out to Crystal Sizek. Man, I hope I got that right. I need more neuro. And Dr. Quintero at Key Autism Services. Uh, Dr. Quintero is going to join us December 3rd. So shout out to those guys. Crystal works over at Key Autism Services. Met her yesterday. Great person. Can't wait to have a little chat. I think she's going to join us as well. I'd also like to give a shout out to Ash Mishra, PhD. He's a clinical uh, neuroscientist and director at NCI Clinical Research Foundation. We've talked to him for a while. Great, great guy. Always follows us. L- love having him uh, keeping an eye on us. Okay, quick bit on the news. Uh, some more people are putting money in neurofeedback devices. Uh, Swedish health tech startup Mendy crowdfunds about 3 million euro. Now, I'm not good with my math, but I think that's almost four, 4 million bucks. Basically putting a device on the head, measuring b- blood flow and ha- having the ability to uh, do some training. There's a bunch of different devices out there, right guys? Yep. Any, any, any particular ones you guys uh, give a shout out to? None, because they haven't sponsored us yet. Okay. All right. Book you should know. Uh, Skip, you gave us a couple. Grain, brain, and brainwash. What do you, the broken brain. What's, what, tell, tell us quickly about those. So Dr. David Perlmutter uh, used to be, have a practice down here in Naples, Florida. And his approach to the dementias was from the gut brain health relationship versus traditional approaches to dementias, which is, um, you know, you come up with a diagnosis and you tell folks to get their affairs in order and that's it for that treatment. So he's, he's approached it differently with the idea that the treatment, if you will, the, the, the way to kind of go after dementias is a preventative approach and it starts in your 20s and 30s and it it absolutely 1000% involves diet, consciousness of your environment, uh, managing sleep, uh, making sure you're engaging in healthy relationships, uh, getting exercise, getting outside, monitoring screen time, all the things you would think and on some level know that probably aren't awesome for you. He's saying really, really matter these days and because of the overwhelming, uh, I'll say availability of all those things, meaning the ease at which it is to participate in all those negative habits, right, is what's contributing to these staggering numbers of dementias. So that's, that's Dr. Perlmutter. The second book, Brainwash, is with his son, who's also a neurologist, and they've come together and, and are trying to highlight the link between, hey, here's what we know, um, and here's what you need to do, what's in between there in that things aren't happening, right? So as physicians, they're prescribing things all the time to folks, you know, not just meds, but lifestyle choices, but it's not happening. So what's the, what's the catch? And so again, it's this reinforcement of the idea that there's factors out there that impede our ability to be able to do what we want to do, which is be happy and healthy and all those good things. It's not just an issue of willpower. They go as far as saying it's quite the opposite. It's that things are working against our willpower, not only making it harder, but chipping away at this, quote, notion of willpower in the first place. 
And then Dr. Hyman is a functional medicine guy, pretty prominent voice in the field. I worked out of the Cleveland Clinic. Now he's got his own thing going. But about three or four years ago, he put a series together called the Broken Brain Series, which is where I kind of got my taste for it, no pun intended, um, with kind of keto approaches to things. And I've been following his work and he has a couple podcasts out there and whole bunch of books. So we're going to put links uh, to the books on the NeuroNoodle website. You'll see it under blogs and podcasts. Check them out. Brain Brain, anything to do with glutens on that one? Maybe a little. Yeah. All right. I'm going to tell my wife about that. Definitely. It it is, um, pardon sarcasm, the idea is that we, we just haven't evolved to be able to handle the new grains. Doesn't mean you can't eat bread. That's the pushback. Hey, I've been eating bread my whole life. Um, what about people in Europe? They eat bread. They're fine. We have different bread, right? Our farming yeah. industry is subsidized in ways without getting political on this podcast, but it's led to the foods we eat being not healthy for us and our bodies just haven't adapted. So these things are impacting us negatively. That's, that's brain, brain, grain, grain, brain. Sorry. Got it. All right. Awesome. All right. You guys ready to uh, hit our main topic? Everybody wants to know about <laughs> Sure. depression. <clears throat> What is depression? I got a note down here because I'm the layman of the three of us. Is depression, anxiety, anxiety burnt out? Yeah, what is depression, guys? So the, again, back to the DSM, we referred to that last time and we'll probably refer to it every time that a diagnosis is presented. But right. depression is a disorder and it's probably commonly thought of how it presents itself. So sad feelings, lack of energy, lack of motivation, lack of enjoyment in things you used to enjoy. Um, there's varying degrees of depression. There's major depression. And that's probably what folks go to in their minds. I'm guessing with, you know, the, the shades drawn, can't get out of bed kind of thing. Um, thoughts of self-harm creep in, right? Despair, hopelessness. I'm getting bummed out mentioning all the yeah. things, right? It's, it's a drag and it's a downer. That's major disorder or a major depression. There's others within this category within the DSM of the depressive disorders. And so there's something called persistent depressive disorder, which is more of a depression light, if you will. You're certainly able to function in your life. You're just bummed out more than not. And I don't mean to minimize or belittle it, but it's not major depressive disorder. It's a functioning depression. There's a few others in there. There's, there's in, in regards to kids in general, um, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, which is a newer one with the more recent version of the DSM. And it's tantrums, it's, it's irritability, it's, it's caustic reactions. There's parameters on when you can prescribe it even, or I'm sorry, um, diagnose it. And you can't do it before six and you can't do it after 18. So it kind of captures childhood into adolescence, right? And then it bails out right before adulthood. So it's this way to, again, recognize that depression looks different across the lifespan. Kids don't always get bummed out and, you know, go in their room, although they do. Sometimes they're just irritable and they lash out and, and nothing is soothing kind of thing. So that's a couple of the different varieties just to point out that, hey, depression isn't one thing. Um, it, it's a grouping of depressive disorders. Dr. Laura, what do you say? Yeah, so I'm thinking of, um, we're defining things, you know, based on, on the manual we're using to define it, right? So if you use yeah. um, a diagnostic statistical manual, it's a psychiatric, 
you know, manual that uh, we all follow to put a stamp on people in terms of diagnosis. It's the one the insurance, you know, DSM, the insurance companies communicate using that book, the psychiatrists communicate using that book. So you can call that a limiting uh, diagnostic manual. But uh, when we think of neuropsychology, so, you know, me and Skip are both trained in, you know, psychology. We both have an extensive history of being psychotherapists, and we'll talk about that you know, how psychotherapy diagnoses depression, but neuropsychology. So we're looking at brain and behavior connections. You know, we look at, you know, what are people doing and what does that tell us about their brain? And we assess that, you know, using traditional paper and pencil tests. And, you know, there's personality tests that we can assess for these things. Um, so when I'm thinking of a, you know, if I was going to do a neuropsychological evaluation um, and the question has to do with depression, you know, there's many neurological diseases that have depression as, you know, one of their symptoms. So, you know, it'll be common for us to get um, someone, for example, with Parkinson's and, and you know, they're going to have depression as, as part of their symptom picture. So, so neuropsychology of depression, I'm thinking about, as Skip already was talking about, you know, mood. You know, uh, are you sad? Are you um, dysphoric? You know, you can't get happy. Even doing things you like to do, you just can't, uh, you know, find pleasure in it. So that's the mood piece of depression. And then the mood and affect, A-F-F-E-C-T. Affect is the behavior display of de depression. So you can look at someone, you can imagine someone as, you know, you listen to these podcasts, what does a depressed person look like? They're tearful, their uh, body posture is, you know, slumping or just slow moving, slow, uh, you know, we talk about the motor uh, aspect of depression. They're just slow going. They can't get a lot done. They're, you know, stereotypically sitting or laying, basically doing nothing or uh, using their thumbs on their uh, devices and kind of scro scrolling around at nothing or, you know, switching the TV channels to essentially nothing. So. So there's a mood, there's an affect, there's a motor component. Um, and motivation, we talked about motivation a little bit last week when we were uh, addressing anxiety. Um, you know, they're, they're the same brain structures. Uh, you know, when we talk about anxiety and, and depression, so there's going to be diminished motivation. Just don't feel like doing anything, don't want to go anywhere. What do you want to do today? I don't know. What do you want to do? Just just no, no juice, no, no electricity. And then, you know, there's a cognitive content. Um, and that's where we get into the psychotherapy definitions of uh, depression. Uh, you know, what are you thinking about? What, what do depressed people think about? They think that the world is ending. It's never going to get better. I'm no good. Brain uh, system, brain network called the default mode network. Basically, what that means is when we're sitting around doing nothing, uh, even if your mood is fine, when you're sitting around doing nothing, you're prone to what they call self-referential thinking. You're and, and it's judgmental. I should do this. I should do that. And a little bit of that is fine. A little bit of you know self-correction is fine. Oh, hey, I need a new pair of shoes, or I need a haircut, or I you know I got to change this or that, or I you know said something stupid yesterday. I should you know correct that and, and go on. Um, someone who has depression just can't let that stuff go. They just sit and you know we'll say obsess or, or can't shut off those self-referential judgmental thoughts. You know nothing is going to get better. Again, I'm no good. Uh, I'll never get a job and, or whatever it is. I'm, I'll, I'll never finish this project. I can't do anything right. See everybody who criticized me ever in my lifetime, they were right. So there's this huge cognitive content to uh, depression as well. So we have mood, affect, motivation, uh, what you're thinking about, 
uh, in this motor feature where everything is kind of slowed down. And, you know, there, there's, um, you know, aspects of, you know, we talk about, you know, what you're thinking about this aspect of, you know, su suicidal thinking, you know, can get into that and gets, that gets into a, you know, kind of scary crisis place. Um, but it's, yeah, this kind of this message to yourself, like there, there's no way out. And the only way out is to check out. Depression can obviously become, become pretty serious. A loop of negative voices in your head. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, again, we're going to split hairs on, you know, I start to you know, go down that road of, you know, neuroscience, right. you know, dishing out what the, what the brain's up to. It's pretty normal, actually, to have depressing thoughts because depressing thoughts can motivate us to do stuff. Again, to say, you know, I need a haircut or, or I need to change some aspect of myself or what I'm doing. That's a negative thought. It has a judgmental piece to it. A, a degree of that is very normal and we should all have that. Um, but the, I, I think the point, you know, when we start getting into, you know, adults and you know, more developed thinking that we should be able to, should, but should be able to talk ourselves into a better frame of mind. And the average person who's not depressed can generally do that. You can wake up in a, excuse the language, or a crappy mood or a low mood. Um, but most people, especially, you know, again, people who are not depressed can go, hey, you know what, it's, it's the same thing into the world. Keep going, add a girl, add a boy, push through, and you're going to feel better once you accomplish this thing. And you can self-motivate and shut off those uh, default thoughts, the, the I'm no good thoughts. It's easier to shut them off if you don't have depress de depression. Are people born with it? Do born you... with depression? I, I think we're born with the default mode network. And again, we're getting into brain science. There's as a and what I mean by uh, networks, um, different areas of your brain light up when you're doing different things. They're, they're networks, they're patterns. It used to be uh, back in the earlier part of my education and career that they, they would talk about, you know, one part of the brain did one thing. Um, if you're depressed, that must be a front left hemisphere issue because people who've had strokes in the front left hemisphere tend to be depressed. So it's a lesion theory. And again, where I'm getting all science-y. But um, the, the point is that uh, doing nothing, your brain tends to wander on negative thoughts or judgy thoughts. When you start doing something, when you start getting involved in anything, even if it's rearranging your uh, you know, shelves in your kitchen, when you start doing anything, those, those self-referential thoughts stop. Like, so you could switch networks and switch in and out of things. And you know, that, that could be some clues into how people can, you know, work to help themselves. So it's a, a psychotherapy intervention. I mean, we're starting to talk about mindfulness-based uh, treatment for depression. You know, looking at these patterns, you know, we're, we're doing neurofeedback and we can do neuroimaging. And I, I can, you know, look at someone's brain map and say, hey, yeah, there's that left hemisphere uh, deal that we know can get botched up and or get dysregulated uh, in depression. And we can, you know, work very directly at um, making that, uh, more regulated. Somebody comes in, what is the general course of action? If you don't have an EEG in your office and you don't know anything about neurofeedback, someone comes in, they say they're depressed and you have a doctor whose background is to look it up into the, in the DSM. How does that process normally work for somebody that hasn't even gone to a psychologist before? Are you meaning um, specifically without access to maybe nerve? I'm a, I'm a I'm a dad. I'm a mom. My okay. kid's depressed. I'm gonna you know, they got to go talk to somebody. It seems, uh, and again, kind of in my experience in my career, is that folks go to their pediatrician. Even these days, maybe they'll talk to somebody in their school and they'll recommend counseling or therapy. 
And I would say still, Laura, correct me from your geographical area, that talk therapy is still the, the way to go with some kind of medicinal management. That seems to be the overwhelming kind of treatment thrust, if you will. Other ways that are coming about these days that I think podcasts like this are able to illuminate for people, right? But I, real quick, I just want to answer your question about are you born with depression? And I think there are genetic components to it. And so there's also the environment that helps shape the development of your genetics to some degree, right? So back to the, the joke that's not really a joke, but is it nature or nurture? And the answer is yes. And certainly environmental events can happen to shape things in certain directions. Uh, absolutely, right? Traumas. Traumas and other things that uh, you know are unpleasant would, would definitely steer someone towards maybe developing a way of interpreting their environment on an unconscious level that could lead to rumination or repetition of these default mode networks that over time would then lead to more preferred ways of being. When I say prefer, I don't mean positive, but more habitual ways of interpreting one's environment. You could say that in regular language of just your outlook is shaped by your environment and your background and genetics. And I, I'm, I'm still on board with that. Thinking you are too, Laura, um, for the most part. Yeah, and and so you think of the, um, you know, get back into more regular language. If you're feeling, okay, we're in, you know, still in COVID and actually, you know, heading into the winter here in the Midwest, we're in Illinois, you know, things are starting to shut down more because people are going inside and, and all of that. And so, you know, we've been feeling helpless and hopeless. Things have been canceled. You know, everyone is in the same, you know, ship here with, yeah, weddings are canceled and you can't, you know, someone's in the hospital, you can't visit them, all that stuff. So helpless, hopeless, you know, how could that not cause depression? Like we, you know, if we're not depressed, there's something wrong, you know, right? So, um, but, you know, th there are ways to, to move through that, yes, you can be biologically predisposed to depression and, and kind of no matter what, you know, even if there is a vaccine or whatever, you know, the person predisposed to depression, you know, may not feel helpful, you know, or, you know, feel positive, even if things situationally do get better. So, you know, it's, it's complex, but yeah, there, there's definitely, uh, you know, situationally based things that kind of lock you, in, you know, into a corner and, there's, you know, certainly, uh, you know, the family histories that, not just genetically, but, you know, if you're raised in a family where, you know, the, there's not a lot of hope and, you know, uh, situationally, you know, that's going to carry out. And, and, you know, there's modeling. How do you handle crisis? How do you handle these, these kinds of things? If you're a parent, your kid, I mean, between the ages of 6 to 18, conceivably, you could be taking drugs and talking to a therapist for at least 12 years. Is that possible? Longer in some cases, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, well, no, I mean, that's what, that's what's happening. Alternative is they can come into one of our offices, yes. get a, a brain scan, a QEEG, take a picture, compare it against a quote unquote normal database of brains that don't have the symptoms and notice the difference. Dr. Laura, Dr. Skip, you want to talk, talk to that? I'll let Laura talk about the, the EEG stuff. I just wanted to put in another option that's now available. And back when Laura and I were going to school, we went to school to do therapy, right? Where we're clinical psychologists. I mean, to talk to folks, right? Where I, I, I didn't get a, a degree in uh, research, right? I wanted to sit down and talk to folks and do, do that kind of work. In the 25 years I've been doing this, and, and probably within the last five to 10, 
I've started to recognize that, hey, there's a hell of a lot more going on here than just talking. Um, it's, it's not just a matter of knowing what to do. There's other things that are influencing how we do what we do and even what we're able to do. Uh, I'll let Laura talk about neurofeedback for sure because that's such a powerful tool. The other piece, again, back to the books that were mentioned at the outset here, there's a functional medicine piece to how we work or function as organisms, right? We're human beings, I get it, but we're also organisms operating within our environment. And to have the full capacity of what we're capable of, we have to consider things that might be impeding that. And diet is one major factor that can inhibit or limit our ability to be able to respond to our environment in appropriate ways. And appropriate just means what's best for what's going on. And in this case of depression, we're talking about feeling good, right? And there's other factors like toxins in our environment. Um, and I mean, our local environment, our homes, right? You paint your house and the, you got paint fumes. That affects neurological functioning. Diet, and I don't mean eating well. I mean, the food that's available to us has pesticides on it that affect our gut microbiome. And, and those things over time affect the link between our gut and our brain and how it communicates and how our brain is then therefore able to function. And if we're talking about mood, that's another piece that needs to be addressed. I'm not taking away from counseling therapy or anything like that. I think it's fantastic. It is just now a piece and it can't be the major piece in my opinion, because if it was, we'd be done with our work. You wouldn't have to go after six to 18. You could do it from six to six, one month because you tell kids what to do and they'd be like, okay, good, I'll do that. There's just much more involved here. And again, not to take away from the therapeutic relationship and the value of that. Um, it's just, there's other pieces. So I'll let Laura talk about the fantastic impact that neurofeedback can have. Sure, yeah, and I guess I just want to kind of trail uh, from what you're saying, kind of connect a little bit to uh, what you just said that, um, and, and you mentioned this last week, Skip, that um, much of our, our how, how many neurotransmitter, how much serotonin's in our gut? In our, in our, say that again, what you said last week, Skip, about the, the nerve cells and in, in the gut functioning uh, in relation to the brain. So only second to the brain does the gut microbiome place in neurons, Yeah. right? Neuron nerve centers or connectors, if you will. So the gut is second and the brain's first. Um, but what the brain or the gut is referred to often in literature is the second brain. Right. So now we have this idea of, OK, there's another piece here that is influencing our brain function. And it's not just a, a casual acquaintance. They have a direct relationship and the, the communication pathways going from the gut to the brain and the brain to the gut are actually more active going from the gut to the brain. So who's telling who what to do and who is number one, if you get what I'm saying? issue that everybody is, is aware of because we all know inflammation, but the idea is that there's an over exposure, if you will, to this inflammation state that leads to over time because it's steady, right? That it leads to things. And one thing in particular that again, folks might be aware of, but it's called a leaky gut and a leaky gut means things that are supposed to stay in are able to get out and vice versa, things that are outside are able to get in and not to be an alarmist, but just if we're looking at a system 
it's not supposed to work that way, right? Things are supposed to go where they're supposed to go. The continual impact of this process of a leaky system is again, over time, it's gonna impair functioning. And so that's where the focus is, if you will, from this functional medicine perspective. And again, functional meaning kind of holistic, looking at how systems function versus traditional Western medicine. You got a runny nose, you take an antihistamine. Functional medicine is going to look at what's going on with that system that's kicking out histamines. Is there something that's wrong with the system? Is there something influencing the system, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, Anyway, back to where you're going. These things have to operate cohesively. And with this kind of exposure to the things we are, which is a diet that might not be great for us, um, a perpetual, if you will, fight or flight system switch being flipped on because we live in stressful times and we're also exposed to things on a level we've never have been with the advent of phones and news feeds and all this good stuff. Um, And then you throw in something like COVID, which is a double whammy because now you're getting all this information while you're locked in solitude. The number I have read is that well over 90 to 95% of our serotonin is mediated in our gut. Okay. You heard that? Yeah. So I have, I have. Yeah. yeah. So when we talk about serotonin, um, you know, that's, that's the chemical in the brain that, that they regulate when you're taking antidepressant medication. So you take your Lexapros and your Prozacs and those, those kinds of antidepressant medication. You're trying to make the serotonin run better. You know, the point is it's, you got to look at the gut. If you're going to look at depression or you're going to look at mood disorders, that's for sure. Uh, the, the reason I'm kind of uh, nailing in on that is that when I was talking about the neuropsychology of depression, uh, I was talking about thought content of someone who's depressed. And when I, I just want to clarify, after I thought about it, that the thought content, that when I was saying helpless, hopeless, that's going to be a symptom probably more specific to adults. Adults are going to be able to you know, try to process things and come to conclusions about things. And, and they're the ones who, who are going to say, I'm feeling helpless and hopeless. And, you know, you have some clues, you know, other people who, you know, listen to the, you know, that information from adults, they can uh, subjectively, you know, say, hey, my dad's depressed or my grandpa's depressed or Sally. But uh, with children, you know, uh, we were talking about this last week that, yeah, there's a nerve that runs from your, basically your brain to your gut and, uh, you know, can cause a lot of physical symptoms in the gut when you're anxious and so uh, what I'm getting at is that with children, when you ask a child, you know, we're trying to figure out symptoms of depression or anxiety, bring that back, because, uh, you know, they overlap a lot. A child is going to say, I have a stomach ache. A child's going to say, I have a headache. A child's going to say, I've got diarrhea. I've got, especially constipation. I don't know how many kids you see, uh, Skip, who have constipation. Um, and yeah, it's all, you know, kind of wrapped back into, you know, gut health and emotional health and and we, we really want to, you know, pay attention to, to when a kid's saying, I, I've got a stomach ache, you know, it's not just, you know, I'm trying to get out of class. There, there, there's you know, more to the story and we need to pay attention to the children because they're going to express themselves in physiological complaints and, and gut complaints versus, you know, being able to have these complex thoughts like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to me because, you know, they're not thinking that, that uh, complex. But I'll, I'll, I'll kind of run it back to the, you know, the point of neurofeedback. So I'll just kind of summarize real quick that, yeah, with NeuroNoodle and, and the practice that, that I'm involved in, we, we do this uh, operation, this training called neurofeedback. It starts with getting a image of the functioning of the brain. We can read the electricity from the brain at the scalp level, um, take that data, feed it through a computer. The computer can show 
the individual child or adult, kind of what, what their brain's doing. And it could show which parts of the brain are uh, functioning well and which, which parts aren't. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there is a signature uh, for depression on, on these brain maps that they can look at. And, and typically it's a front left area that is dysregulated. The front left, just by the way, has to do with not just controlling your mood because there, there's an, as I was mentioning a little bit earlier that, yeah, I mean, you can wake up in kind of a cruddy mood and, and then kind of talk yourself, so to speak, out of that. And that's what the front left does. It helps you kind of you know, think things through in a logical way, take in information that can update, you know, reality for you and, and help you kind of challenge your thinking and be a little bit more logical about, you know, what's going on. So th those folks, just by the way, who have that front left dysregulation, they are the exact people who are going to, I say to the patients all the time, and I, I mean, this little somewhat tongue in cheek, but they're going to stink at psychotherapy because psychotherapy is about change your thinking, right? Your logic is off, you're being irrational. And, and, and the message isn't knock it off as much as, hey, here's the goal. We're trying to get you to change your thoughts. And if your front left is dysregulated, you're the person who's gonna be the worst at it. And so uh, with neurofeedback, you know, again, what we're doing, we're, we're feeding back to the individual, to the organism, uh, hey, you're dysregulated there. And uh, we can make corrections by having people, you know, watch movies or have some other feedback, whether it's music or a sound of some type. Uh, kids or even adults do this. They, we have video games that they, the when when the uh, media is playing playing uh, properly, like if there's a movie playing, uh, when the movie is playing properly, that's feedback to the person. Hey, your brain's doing the right thing. It's no longer dysregulated in that front left uh, area. And when the movie stops playing because the computer's uh, in charge of setting rewards and, and cutting the rewards. When the movie plays, you know, regularly, then the feedback to the individual is, hey, your brain's working right. And so the more reward-based training like that, the more uh, regulated that brain area can uh, become. And the repetitive trainings help, we'll say correct, and that's maybe too strong, but help re regulate is probably the better word, uh, regulate the, the functioning in that area, the more repetitions it sticks. And, you know, when, when we're done working that area, then we're done. So, you know, if it takes 10, 20, 30 sessions, that's still a drop in the bucket compared to, as Pete was referring to, yeah, you can go to therapy for 10 years and challenge your thinking. But if you don't, you know, that's the question. If you don't fix things or correct things at the physiological level, you know, where exactly are you going? So that's how neurofeedback is designed to, you know, we can take a picture, see, see the area dysfunctioning, or we might all be surprised. I, this happens to us all the time. You know, someone will say it, come in and say, I think I'm, whatever, I'm depressed. They just know because that's how they've identified themselves. They'll come and say, I'm depressed. And we'll take a picture and go, you know, I'm not going to challenge how you feel. Okay, you feel how you feel. But, you know, your, the anxiety is actually looking like the worst problem because it's a right hemisphere, you know, thing that's dysregulated. How about we you know, um, instead of hitting the depression right away, why don't we hit, hit the right hemisphere and see if that, you know, can make things better. So, so having the objective data is basically, you know, bottom line is, you know, we can confirm, validate, hey, yeah, you, you got that brain that looks like the stereo, you know, the uh, signature for depression or, or you don't. And, and, you know, we can kind of tweak things, you know, chase the symptoms or, you know, correct things uh, toward um, the average normative database. So we have a lot of ways of uh, get, getting after things with the, the neurofeedback training. One way to cure everything, right? I mean, talk therapy and, and medication, that could be the way to do it. This is another way to do it. 
to well, me, I'm sorry, you're good. Uh, so what we see in, you know, maybe it's, you know, pendulum can keep swinging the other way, but what we're seeing is people come in, you know, medication doesn't help everybody. I mean, there, there's a percentage of people and it's a huge percentage that medication doesn't help. Um, talk therapy is, I was referring to, if your brain's kind of dysregulated, you could do talk therapy for the next 20 years and still not get, quote, it, you know, not, not you know, kind of cross that bridge. Some people, you know, the average person might, but there's plenty of people at the physiological, genetic, you know, whatever level um, that don't get better with medication or therapy. So, you know, here's a, here's another option. Like, you know, what if it, you know, what if it was the missing link for you and why not, you know, why not try and see? If I could, if I could add at this point in my career, I'm really comfortable saying that of the options, I feel like neurofeedback based on experience uh, and having seen it in, in my office, that neurofeedback gets after more than the others individually. And that's, again, coming back to this idea that, hey, meds don't work for everybody. And actually, sometimes meds have adverse effects because of individual neuro, neural anatomy and neural functioning. Therapy doesn't work for everybody because it doesn't. Neurofeedback has a way of allowing the brain to train itself to operate more efficiently. And I know that's kind of jargony talk, but the brain does learn through these reinforcements or feedback, the thresholds in which to operate, which are determined by providers. That's what we do, right? You set those parameters. And then again, the brain quickly learns, okay, if I stay in this range, I'm going to get my treat, which is to watch this movie. And I like it consciously, meaning the human sitting in the seat uh, that's watching the movie, you don't have to do anything. The brain's doing it behind the scenes. And again, that's the beauty of it. But the secondary beauty of it is that these impacts from this training oftentimes, and again, this is my experience, Laura and Pete, you can speak to yours uh, too, is you often have things that result that you weren't anticipating. And so you're going after maybe depression or anxiety or whatever the presenting symptoms or, or deficits are. And then three weeks down the road, you'll have a kid say, hey, my handwriting's better. And, and my teachers are blown away because now they can actually read my handwriting. And you're sitting there scratching your head going, how the hell did that happen? Right. We're here because you were pulling your eyebrows out. Right. What's going on here? And, you know, we could probably talk our way through it and maybe maybe come up with some conclusions on why. But my point being is that, yeah, you're focusing on this particular issue or symptom and the brain saying, All right, that's great. You guys can do what you want. I'm learning how to operate more efficiently, which is going to allow me to utilize and put my resources where they need to be. And again, from the brain point of view, where resources need to be is wherever the environment is saying they need to be. So your brain's a reacting organ and it's saying, all right, I got to sit down and shut up because I'm in class or my mom's telling me to do this, or I need to wait five minutes to get, well, well my popsicle, I can't eat it before dinner, you know, like whatever. I'm, I'm, simple examples, but the brain's doing what it does and it will then delegate where this energy or, or information needs to go to satisfy the most of, in, in the environmental demands. Yeah. And the brain wants normalcy, right? It, it's, there's a rhythm, there's a natural rhythm that the brain is seeking just intrinsically. It's not a you know, free will conscious choice kinds of things. There's, it, it wants health, it wants normalcy. And, and the neurofeedback is kind of tweaking, pushing it, you know, toward normal, trying to get the rhythm, yeah. get it to self-regulate, you know, 
we're not going to be self-regulating, you know, again, for the next 10 years, we're going to kind of nudge it in the right direction. And then the brain takes over because that's what it wants. It wants, it wants to see the movie, but it, you know, overall though, it wants kind of a natural rhythm and that's what we're achieving with people. So if the brain is in a natural rhythm and the brain is, you know, responsible for zillions of things, you know, the, you know, half a zillion things could get better because you've, you've just put the the rhythm in, in place that, that uh, is achieving norm, you know, a normal, healthy state. What's got me pretty excited is being a parent, you're relying on talk therapy, there has to be talking or communication. And, you know, kids can't communicate what's wrong with them. Like you said before, you know, my tummy hurts. That could be anxiety, you know, to take that picture and be able to have the data say, Oh, this is what's what the issue is and be able to do something about it. I think that's uh, guys, you have anything else you want to add on depression? I mean, who we can we can go for a couple hours on this one. I got, I got a small thing in, in, yeah. uh, I can make it long cause that's what I do. But eighties yeah. uh, uh, or nineties, I was in, I don't know, some kind of waiting room and I picked up a time magazine. I haven't seen a time magazine in paper in years, but back then I was compelled to read this article that talked about it was just a research study and you know, the validity I'd have to look it up and, and whatever, but it was compelling study. It, it was a guy who uh, tried to calculate how many thoughts the average human, we'll say adult probably, how, how many thoughts the adult uh, has in one day. What they computed was we think, and I don't know how they define thoughts exactly and whatever, split hairs on that too, but uh, the outcome was that we think between 10 and 70,000 thoughts a day. I've that, heard I've heard that as well. I've heard 40 to 80. So okay, yeah, in that range. Okay, so it's yeah. just interesting stuff. So 10, 10 to 70, 40 to 80, tons and tons of thoughts, right? Um, 90% of those thoughts are repetitive, right? So we're re- repeating the same whatever I got, I need a new pair of shoes 10,000 times a day, or I got to pay that bill or I whatever want to go golfing this weekend, whatever. You repeat that stuff, you know, 10 to 70,000, whatever, 80,000 times a day. Uh, 90% of those thoughts don't come true. Uh, I'll, I'll never work again. I'll never be able to fix this, whatever thing is broken. So, you know, you repeat, so anxiety, you know, there, there's aspects of anxiety that have worry pieces, right? So I'm going to guess that the people who are anxious or worry prone are going to be at the 70, 80,000 thoughts a day, part of that scale. What I think about is if you're repeating 80,000 times a day to yourself that I'm no good, I'm never going to get there, it's not happening for me, you, you know, add up those thoughts in a day, how could you not be depressed? So, you know, there's a hand in glove thing here with, you know, worried thoughts and negative thinking, and I referred to fault mode network and probably define that better someday. But, but the point is that, yeah, you're thinking a lot of thoughts and a lot of thoughts have a negative valence, negative value, negative quality. Um, you, you're, you're no doubt going to be depressed. And so um, I, I think that that's, that's something to think about as, as we're making these definitions. You know, there's a, there's a range of, and maybe we can even say that at the 10,000 thoughts side of things, those are the people who are depressed. They're not thinking too much. But, but again, the point is they overlap. And we can see those things directly on the, the scans that we do and uh, be, be compelling to um, kind of, uh, see that see that out in real life like you know do a little research on our own and have, I, I do that sometimes with my clients I have them take out a piece of paper and think random thoughts for a minute and then kind of you know uh, prorate that out and see how many thoughts per hour and whatever 
So it'd be kind of interesting to kind of do that kind of stuff to show people, hey, you know, what you're doing on paper, because I just made you think a ton of thoughts at random and what your brain uh, map looks like uh, kind of line up. So there's all sorts of ways to, to, to use this imaging uh, information to, to help people. So that's all. I want to reference uh, someone who's doing some work in this area and his, his name is Dr. Joe Dispenza, D-I-S-P-E-N-Z-A. And what he's done, and he's taken, by the way, the, the NeuroGuide uh, software and in his lectures or meetings or whatever you want to refer to them, uh, seminars, conferences, right? He's actually wiring folks up to get cues done while they're doing meditations. There you go. And he has some pretty prescribed med meditations that he does with folks. So there's the control factor there, at least at the outset. And what he's able to have shown is that one, our thoughts do play a part in creating our realities. And I know that's kind of a big, big concept to bite into. Um, we're talking quantum kind of theory stuff, which that's as far as I can say about it, right? It's, it's deep, uh, smart people stuff for sure. But he's able to show this um, through the EEGs and he's also able to show through the meditation practice, if you will, meaning over time. And in this case, it's three days, right? In these conferences that folks are able to change their overall EEGs. So for example, if someone showed up on Thursday and they had a EEG that might look like uh, you know, a depressive EEG, um, that they'd be able to change that in, in a more preferable direction. So back to this idea of 80,000 thoughts a day left unguided, they're going to take us in a direction, thoughts that, or, or brains that uh, fire together, wire together, thought, thought processes, right? And they're going to create habitual responses to things. That's the rumination of these 80,000 thoughts and interventions such as meditation or focus uh, on some of those 80,000 thoughts a day. You don't have to be vigilant, right? That's your whole day. But that it can play a part in also altering the overall function. And so we're talking about neurofeedback here on this podcast for sure. And it's it, a really powerful intervention. There's some others that are out there too that can be really strongly impactful that, again, can complement, supplement things like neurofeedback. So just to get that out there too, there's some really interesting, powerful things being done. Yeah, you know what, and I, I know we're trying to close, but uh, maybe this can um, help leapfrog into, you know, one of the, the future sessions here. I want to bring Lori Russell, Dr. Lori Russell into this because, you know, she's the one with the textbook talks about neurotherapy, which means it's a hybrid. It's a hybrid with looking and we'd say analyzing your thoughts or challenging your thoughts, identifying what kind of thoughts are leading to what kind of feelings, because that's our traditional cognitive behavioral therapy. Using that, but uh, doing your traditional uh, therapy, but having uh, the sensors, you know, directly connected to the computer. And we can look at, you know, thinking you know, these negative thoughts, what, what it immediately does to your brain function. You could look right up at the screen. Hey, I'm having this worried thought, you know, on purpose, make someone worry about something. And you could look right up on the screen and see what part of the brain's lit up and say, okay, hey, there you go. That's what it's physiologically doing to you when you have that thought. And, you know, there, there's all sorts of whatever kind of approaches to, you know, what do you do about that? But I, I think having an objective piece involved in the therapy session, you know, absolutely takes it to another level. And that's, you know, where uh, Lori Russell has, has gone with this, just like me and Skip, you know, she has a uh, 
phenomenal background. She's an amazing psychotherapist, but then, you know, she adds, you know, this technology and it just takes it completely to another level. So it'd be nice to have uh, Dr. Russell uh, involved with us in the, in the future to uh, take this uh, idea further. Okay, guys, I'm going to start ramping it up here. That was, a, that was a good one. Depression. You are what you think about most of the time. Yep. Learned that back in my sales day, because if you didn't have a good attitude, you wouldn't sell anything. Yeah. Guys, please give us five stars on uh, Apple Podcasts. I'll take if six. You don't, if, you don't, if you don't like us, give us six stars. <laughs> Thanks for everybody coming out. Like <laughs> us on social media. And then go to neuronoodle.com and blog slash podcast. If you have any, have any comments or any suggestions, you know, we're, we're here to help you out. There's not one way to fix everything and everybody's got something. So guys, take care. Have a, have a great weekend over and out. Arriva Durce.